Welcome to the Church in the Graveyard podcast. Over the next three weeks, we are taking some time to think about some of the practices we do as an Anglican church, baptism, the Lord's Supper, and creeds. These practices can seem somewhat strange at times, but they are all ways in which we celebrate the wonderful truth at the heart of the gospel. That is, our salvation is secure because of what Jesus has done. For more information and audio content, please visit neac.com.au. Hi, my name's Jen, this is Ben, and we're going to read the Bible for you tonight. The first reading comes from Luke, chapter 22, starting at verse 14, and you'll find that on page 1044 in your pew Bibles. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. Also, a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be greatest. Jesus said to them, The king of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. If you'd like to flip over to page 1135, the second reading comes from 1 Corinthians 10, uh, verses 14 to 22. It's on 1135. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people, judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean then that a sacrifice offered to an idol is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. 
but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Well, good evening again. Let's pray together as we think about those passages. Father, we ask you to be with us and to bless us this evening uh, as we read your word and think about what it means and what this gift you have given us in the Lord's Supper means. And we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Uh, Well, today uh, we continue a series we're in on key practices in the life of our church. And we're looking at the practice of sharing the Lord's Supper, which is, as Roger's already mentioned, we're doing this evening. Uh, I've had some interesting experiences with communion. Um, I was uh, once visiting a very small church in Cambridge uh, on holidays, uh, and I went to take communion with the rest of the congregation, all seven of us. And um, one of them included an old lady who, to put it politely, was just not as in control of her bodily you know, abilities as she once was, I'm sure. And uh, as at the ebb and flow of at the rail, I suddenly realised she'd be taking the cup just before me, uh, and my distress was great, as sure enough, it was not just wine that I received that morning uh, with the wine. Another time I was serving communion with uh, the, at my old church, and uh, after somebody gave the cup back, there was a floater, uh, and I uh, tried to retrieve it, but it sank. Uh, so made me glad that we often don't anymore do the practice or where the people serving communion have to finish off the wine. I hope that hasn't put you off the common cup, actually. Uh, it's kind of, I just, you know, that's the tough way to take communion. Yeah. Um, it is an odd practice, the Lord's Supper, isn't it? Uh, as well as being a little unhygienic, uh, it frankly creates... A fair amount of awkwardness uh, as we, you know, work out how to do it and we worry about it and so on. Uh, it's a practice that, as many of you may be aware, actually is exclusive. Um, whenever we do it, we stress that it's, it's not always appropriate for anyone and everybody to take this meal. And so it would actually be much easier if we didn't have it. Uh, you know, it would make our Sunday meetings much more outsider-friendly uh, if we just kind of didn't do it. So what is this practice about? Why do we do it? And, and do we really need it? This is our interest this morning. Uh, there are lots of questions we're not going to have time for, but hopefully what we do cover will be helpful. So let's begin by asking why we do the Lord's Supper. You've got an outline uh, in your uh, handouts as well, which will help you know where we're going. Why do we do the Lord's Supper? Well, the Lord's Supper, like baptism, is a symbolic ritual action. It's a symbolic meal in which bread and wine or wine substitute are given out accompanied by words that connect them with Jesus' death. The words we say, though, also connect this meal to a particular moment in the Gospels, the Last Supper, which we read about in in Luke chapter 22. When we introduce the Lord's Supper, we deliberately recall this moment in Jesus' life. And that's just not just an Anglican thing. 
uh, from the very beginning, that's been the practice. In 1 Corinthians 11, just after our passage, um, Paul uh, links the tradition of the Lord's Supper with the Last Supper, with Jesus' teaching. Okay, so what happened at the Last Supper? Well, uh, you might want to turn to Luke 22, our first reading. Uh, That's where we find out. Uh, It was page 1044, 35, 44. Uh, The context is it's the climax of Jesus' mission. Uh, It's just before the festival of Passover when the Jewish people celebrated how God had brought them out of Egypt. And the key symbol of the Passover was a slain lamb which was sacrificed as a substitute so that their lives would be spared. And Jesus secretly makes preparations to eat a Passover meal with his disciples. And he uses this secret Passover meal, or part of it, as a way of interpreting to his disciples the meaning of his death. Have a look at it there in verse 14. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, verse 19, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Jesus essentially talks about two things. He talks about what this meal means for him, and he talks about what this meal means for the disciples. For him, the meal is a last meal. It is his last moment of sharing in the normal joys of food and drink and fellowship with his friends. And yet it's not actually a last, last meal because he also knows and looks ahead to the time when he will eat and drink again in the fulfillment of the kingdom of God. For the disciples, though, the meal has another meaning. The bread and the wine represent Jesus' death for them. This meal is meant to show them the meaning of what just a few hours after this moment they are going to witness. Jesus being brutalized and murdered. It's meant to show them that that is nothing less than a sacrifice given to God so that they can be forgiven. Jesus is like the Passover lamb slain as a substitute to make atonement for sin. And when he gives them bread and wine to eat and drink, Jesus is is showing them that he is giving them his own life so that they can live. Can I just ask you for a moment to imagine what it must have been like to be there at this meal? It must have been eerie. By this time, the disciples were aware, you see, that something big was happening. Can you imagine Jesus passing the cup around, passing it to you, and you know you have a drink, and then he tells you, that's my blood. Crikey, you know. Jesus tells you it symbolizes his death, and yet we shouldn't overestimate how much the disciples understood at this moment, because they were still in many ways deeply confused. 
The verses that, sh- that follow show us this plainly. Straight after verse 24, they start squabbling about who is the greatest. You know, it's pretty obvious that they haven't quite got it. In fact, it's only with the benefit of hindsight that the, the true significance of this moment would have become clear to them. As they looked back on this meal after seeing Jesus crucified and after meeting him alive again, it's with the benefit of hindsight that the terrible beauty of this moment would have become clear. But here lies the significance of Jesus' command at the center of this supper. In verse 19, did you see it there? He says, do this in remembrance of me. You see, Jesus' intention was that this meal be reenacted later on and and reenacted with the benefit of hindsight. Jesus' intention was that his followers, after seeing the events that this meal pointed to played out, unfold, his intention was that they reenact it with new understanding. And friends, that's what we do when we do the Lord's Supper. In obedience to this command of Jesus, we reenact the Last Supper with the benefit of hindsight. We reenact the Last Supper with the benefit of hindsight, knowing what Jesus meant when he said, given for you, poured out for you. He wasn't, it wasn't just a metaphor. He was talking about the cross. Okay, so what does this meal mean then? What is, how should we think about the meaning of the Lord's Supper? Uh, well, we can answer this by saying that the Lord's Supper points in two directions. It points backwards and forwards. Does that, by the way, does that feel like backwards to you? Am I going the right direction? Because it's kind of opposite when you, that kind of time goes that way. Whatever. Anyway, first, it points backwards. It points backwards to the death of Jesus on the cross. The Lord's Supper is a memorial. It's a way of remembering. We do it in remembrance of Jesus' death. That's why all over our kind of Lord's Supper stuff, it says, this do in remembrance of me. Um, What we are not doing, that is, we're not conducting a sacrifice. This is how... In a way, the Roman Catholic Church understands the Lord's Supper. But it is not right. There was only one sacrifice. And it was done once and for all, never to be done again on the cross. If we think we're doing a sacrifice, then what we're really saying is, Jesus' death was pretty good, but, you know, we've got some pretty good religious stuff to add to that. Come on. There was one sacrifice. And that's why this is a table. It's not an altar. Uh, I know it looks, you know, it's got a front, but that's just because it looks nicer. Okay? It's hollow and it's got these leg bits to show you it's a table. And that's why we move it around. It's not an altar. In fact, it's made of wood. So if you made a sacrifice on it, it would get all the blood in it. Wouldn't work. Altar, stone, table, wood. In the Lord's Supper, you see, we remember Jesus' death on the cross. And we remember it by reenacting the incredible last meal in which our Lord himself gave himself. Sorry, in which he gave himself as bread and wine. So we remember the the meal, not the... Sorry, we're reenacting not the cross, but the last supper. Do you get the point? Right, we're reenacting the meal in which Jesus gave us bread and wine. 
to represent his death. And we come to his table and we hear him teach what his death means for us and that it is for us. But the Lord's Supper doesn't just point backwards, it points forwards as well. It's actually captured really wonderfully on this, I think this is called a reredos, okay? But this, this side says, this do in remembrance of me, and this side says, behold, I come quickly. That's because the Lord's Supper doesn't just point back to the cross, it also points forward. This is a bit we sometimes forget, but we shouldn't. We shouldn't forget, actually, the meaning that the Last Supper had for Jesus himself. Jesus himself, for him, the Last Supper was also an anticipation of the meal he would have in the kingdom, of its fulfillment, the time he would be with his friends again. And so when we eat this meal, we also mourn the fact that Jesus is no longer with us as he was then. And we look forward to the time when he will be once more. And we actually saw this at the end of our reading from Luke's gospel, where in verse 30, Jesus speaks of how he has conferred on his disciples a kingdom so that they may eat and drink with him at his table there. When we share the Lord's Supper, you see, we're conscious of awaiting a fulfillment. The time when Jesus will be with us again and we will celebrate. Can I just encourage you to pause a moment and just think, won't that be wonderful? To have him with us again. To just be able to enjoy him with us in fellowship. I hope you're deeply moved by that thought, actually. He's looking forward to it. We should look forward to it. Okay, so to sum up then, the Lord's Supper points backwards and it points forwards. As Paul put it in 1 Corinthians 11, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We look back to Jesus' death for us once for all and we look forward to its fulfillment in the kingdom. Now, understanding all of this will, will clarify how we should think about what's going on when we do the Lord's Supper. Uh, and here I want to I recall what I said last week about sacraments. If you missed it, you can listen to it or just I'll explain it anyway. The Lord's Supper, like baptism, is a sacrament. That is, it's a special kind of sign or symbol that God has given to us to communicate his grace and shape our response. It's not, therefore, magic. And it doesn't work by magic. At one level, there is nothing else going on than what is plainly visible and what is said. Now, I stress this because the Lord's Supper has frequently become the object of basically superstitious ideas. In particular, the mistake has often been made of thinking that the bread and the wine in the supper become somehow, literally, Jesus' body and blood. And what this leads you to is an idea of the supper where the physical elements are the thing that matters. And so if, for example, you were to spill the wine, which you might do tonight because I accidentally overfilled a couple of the grape juice little things, you know, disaster. 
This, this logic led the church in some ages to refuse to give the wine to the common people. Because imagine, imagine what they might do with Jesus' blood. But that's to mistake the nature of a sacrament. A sacrament is a sign. And so it's not itself, in and of itself, the thing it signifies, the thing it points to. The bread and the wine represent and point us to Jesus' body and blood. But they're not the things themselves. The elements acquire their special significance through their role in this symbolic action. Not by being somehow physically or even spiritually transformed in themselves. Now this also helps us steer away from the related mistake of thinking that the Lord's Supper works automatically. So that kind of as long as you take the bread and wine you'll be okay with God. You know, whatever you actually think about Jesus, all that matters is taking the sacrament. But that's a mistake. It's a dangerous mistake. And it's a mistake because fundamentally, you see, the Lord's Supper is a means of communication. And so it only works in our lives when the message it carries is believed and trusted. It's like a promise. Without trust in the death of Jesus for our sins, without confidence in the thing that this points to, it can't help us. It's a sign that points us to something else. And the thing about a sign is that if you don't follow it, it doesn't take you anywhere. But like I did with baptism, again I want to stress, that doesn't mean there's nothing going on. In the Lord's Supper. And it doesn't mean that how we treat this meal doesn't have consequences. On the contrary, there is something going on in the Lord's Supper. Something with profound consequences. What is that? What's going on? What's going on is that God's grace is being communicated. Powerfully and truly. Through the physical symbol and the words of explanation. And that is a significant thing. And you can't expect to be a part of it and it not affect you. In our second reading from 1 Corinthians 10, it's a bit of a, a funny passage, but it's an important one. If you've, if you've got it open, that would be great. 1 Corinthians 10. Um, Paul describes the significance of the Lord's Supper in using the language of participation. I don't know if you noticed it on the way through. Participation or sharing is the language. From verse 14 of chapter 10. His purpose in this section is actually to call, it's a, it's a purpose that is just weird for us. He's saying, hey, Corinthians, don't, don't have a part in idol feasts. That is, having a meal of sacrificial meat in an idol temple. Uh, now, I, I hope none of you has done this in the last week, um, you know, but it's not, it's not that common anymore. Um, but the danger with this is really, is really illustrative for us. Uh, the danger with this is that they become, as he puts it in verse 20, participants with demons. Well, what, what does he mean by that? Well, he means people who are connected to, through being identified with, demons. Now, why is that a danger? Well, it's not a danger. Please note in verse 19, it's not a danger because the meat at the idol feast, is somehow transformed, has somehow become something other than meat. No. 
But it's a danger because that kind of action, that is sharing in an idol feast, it has a meaning. It has a meaning. You become a sharer, a participant in the table. You become linked to it. And that's unacceptable for Christians, says Paul, because they are sharers in the Lord's table. Verse 16, is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. This symbolic action, you see, is powerful. And not because something magical and unseen happens to the bread and wine, but because symbols are powerful. Because this action communicates the grace of God in such a profound and intimate way that sharing in it means something, means something real. It's for this reason, by the way, not because we have a, not we, because we have a kind of a superstitious view of the Lord's Supper, but for this reason, that Anglicans have historically been very careful with the Lord's Supper. Uh, we don't just let anybody and everybody administer the Lord's Supper. It's not that you have to have a special priestly ability in order to be able to make the bread and wine turn into something else. No. But it's because we think this is a significant action. And when, when it's done... It is a powerful and important symbol that you ought to be careful with. We'll ask more about that next week if you'd like to. Let's ask, though, for all of us, what does all this mean for how we should share in this meal? How we should be involved in this? The basic answer is not carelessly. We should not come to the table thinking it's a small thing or not thinking at all. Rather, we should come with respect for what this act signifies. We should come to it with thankfulness, humility, and repentance. And above all, we must not be arrogant. And we must not be unwilling to submit to God. In 1 Corinthians 11, just the next chapter from where we are, just after the passage we've, we've looked at, Paul actually stresses the importance of these things in, in ways that seem weird to us. We need to hear them. Have a look at verse 27. I'll read it as well. Therefore, he says, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. And he goes on. Uh, now, there's lots to talk about here. Um, but let's just ask, what's the logic here? Has Paul gone back to a kind of magical idea of the supper? Well, no, he hasn't. The logic, I think, is more like this. You see, God's mercy must change us. God's mercy must bring about a response of repentance and thankfulness. And if it doesn't, something has gone awry. 
And so there is something deeply wrong in sharing in the Lord's Supper, the purpose of which is to unveil the grace of God in a powerful and intimate way. There's something wrong with being a part of that and your heart not being moved towards God. That kind of hardness of heart actually can be deadly. Okay, so what does it look like to come to the table in a worthy manner? How do you do that? Well, let me tell you first what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean being sinless. There is no one sinless except Jesus. And the whole point of the Lord's Supper is that we are all sinners in need of forgiveness. So please don't make the mistake of thinking you have to stay away because you're not perfect yet. I'll just get everything together, then I'll come. You'll never come. If you were perfect, you wouldn't need this meal. No, the Lord's Supper isn't for perfect people. It's for penitent people. People, that is, who are willing to humble themselves before God's mercy and repent and submit to God's grace changing their lives. Now, the point of the liturgy, we say a bunch of words before the Lord's Supper every week, uh, well, when, whenever we do it. Um, the point of that is to help us with this. We pray prayers of confession and preparation in order to approach the table with the right attitude. And these words, they're not just motions that we have to go through. They are meant to lead us to an attitude of penitence that's appropriate for what we're doing. But we shouldn't kid ourselves that all that matters is, you know, that we say some words, pray some prayers. No, the point is that we genuinely submit ourselves to the grace of God. And that means that we need to think about actually other things as well, like, say, our relationships with others. When Paul speaks about sharing in the supper unworthily, and when he says, he talks about recognizing the body, he's actually particularly focused on relationships with others because in this whole chapter he's been talking about the church as the body of Christ. And he's particularly worried about people who are being incredibly hurtful in the community, being selfish and proud and disrespectful of others around them. And he's kind of saying, don't kid yourselves. You can't, you can't come to the table with that kind of relationship with your neighbors, with that kind of abuse of them, and think it's going to be all right. It's similar, I think, to the fact that Jesus taught If you want to have God's forgiveness, you have to be willing to forgive others. That's why actually in the old Anglican prayer book, the Lord's Supper used to be announced in advance so that people would have the chance to mend their grievances with each other before they shared in this. The Lord's Supper, you see, is a profound and intimate reminder of what our salvation cost. And what cost God much cannot be cheap for us. So let me encourage you, brothers and sisters, to take this call to self-examination seriously and to pray the prayers of preparation and to come to the table. Not perfect, nobody can do that, but with an attitude of humility and penitence. You may be feeling, though, that all this is pretty serious. 
uh, and after all these warnings, maybe it's not worth it. Uh, Maybe we're better off actually kind of avoiding this practice. And there's no doubt actually that what the Lord's Supper is about, what it signifies, what it confronts us with is pretty disturbing. We might want to just look elsewhere, just avoid it. But you see, if we do that, if we just avoid this practice, what we're actually doing is avoiding reality. In the Lord's Supper, you see, the true dimensions of life are unveiled. This meal confronts us with the ultimate realities of the universe. Death and judgment. Forgiveness and mercy. And these are the things which finally matter. We can avoid these things if we want for a little while. But ultimately, we will have to deal with the things this table points us to. The Lord's Supper, you see, is an uncomfortable practice because it prevents us from living life superficially. It it makes it difficult for us to close our eyes to reality. Yet that is exactly why we need it. God has given us this practice to enable us to face and engage with the deep, deep things of life. And friends, we are able to engage with them. We are able to face them and not run away because at the heart of what we see in the Lord's Supper is grace. If it were anything else, we could only run and hide. But what this meal shows us is that the heart of our relationship with God, of the, at the very bottom of the things that matter, is his grace to us. His mercy in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord's Supper is a word of assurance to us, to each of you, that Jesus died for you. It is the assurance of God's grace for me, for you, that it really extends to you. When you come to communion, you see, Jesus is welcoming you to his table like he did at the Last Supper and giving you bread and wine and saying, this is my body and it's for you. This is my blood and it's for you. It's not just for other people. It's for you. It's Jesus' own assurance that his death is for us. And his promise that one day we will eat and drink with him in the fulfillment of the kingdom of God. This meal is a gift to each of us to assure us that Christ's work was done for us. This is the food that sustains our faith. That's why it's good for us. That's why we need it. Okay, I've gone on a little while. Let us conclude then by considering briefly, like we did last week, Something slightly different, which is what this practice says about us as a community. Whenever you eat the bread and drink the cup, writes Paul in verse 23 of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We are a community that lives by and in the death of Jesus. That's what the Lord's Supper shows us. Communities exist by having things in common. By sharing together in things, whether they be the love of a football team, 
a common nationality or history or a shared place. A Christian community is joined together by our sharing, our fellowship in the death of Jesus. And when we share the Lord's Supper, that is what we demonstrate. That the thing that unites this church is Jesus' death on the cross. Now that means many things for our life together, but let me just highlight three that seem to me especially important. It means that we are utterly committed to forgiveness. It means we are not afraid to suffer. And it means we are thrilled by the promise of the future. First, we are utterly committed to forgiveness. As a community defined by the death of Jesus, we believe in forgiveness. And we, we, we don't just believe in it, we're obsessed with it. It is a deep, deep value and conviction for us. We believe each of us will need forgiveness from each other. And we believe we must give it to each other. For God has forgiven us. We don't think forgiveness is easy. Don't get me wrong. We don't, we don't think it's simple. In fact, the death of Jesus teaches us incredibly clearly that forgiveness is extraordinarily costly and painful. Our world actually likes to talk about forgiveness being really good for you. There might be some truth in that, but actually forgiveness is is deeply difficult. But it is what we are utterly committed to and invested in. A church should not be a place where the wrongs we do to each other and we will do them, where they are ignored. But nor should it be a place where they have the last word. Because the Lord's Supper assures us that they do not have the last word with God. Second, we are not afraid to suffer. A community that lives by the death of Jesus cannot be surprised by suffering and should not be afraid to meet it. We know that this is what following Christ will involve in this time. Now, sometimes that might mean suffering outright hostility and maybe even violence, like our brothers and sisters in Egypt are experiencing at the moment. I don't know if you're aware of this. May the Lord have mercy on them. But that's hardly ever the case in Australia, which is great. But, you know, we almost certainly will experience the struggles and pains that come from seeking to live for Jesus in the face of the limits and brokenness of life in this world, the pains of loss and sickness and difficulty. As a community, it will almost certainly mean that we face painful challenges and threats. But we shouldn't be afraid to suffer in these ways and to share in them with each other. We shouldn't need to hide suffering. The Lord's Supper reminds us that that is the way of Jesus in the world. But finally, thirdly, we are a community thrilled by the promise of the future. We proclaim his death until he comes and he says, behold, I come quickly. We live in expectation, in hope, and it, it sends a shiver through our spine. The promise of his return and being with him again and eating and drinking in the fulfillment of the kingdom. This is what we know lies ahead. 
And so we must not despair when things are grim. And we cannot help a current of cheerfulness that runs through all of our life, even if things are not going so well in one way or another. It's why we sing. It's why we take time to enjoy things where we can. Because the Lord's Supper promises that fasting one day will turn to feasting, that our bridegroom will return, and we will be with him again. He's looking forward to it. We can look forward to it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this gift of your supper in which we remember you and look forward to your return. We pray that you would enable us to share in this meal in the right way, not thinking we need to be perfect, but never taking your grace for granted. We pray that we would be ready to make peace with our brothers and sisters where we need to and ready to repent of sin in our lives. But above all, Lord, we thank you and praise you for the thing this meal points us to, for the way you laid down your life and gave your body and let your blood be poured out so that we might be forgiven. We thank you so much for that, Lord. And we look forward to being with you again. Amen.